Welcome everyone to the Ops Show, where we bring you the trials and tribulations, collaborations and automations from the world of DevOps and the developer experience, uh, as well as my broken glasses in the chronicles of stay-at-home life. Uh, today, our guest is Nima Boscarino, a software developer, educator, and tech ethicist. I'm really excited about this show, and I think episode four is going to be the best yet. Uh, today, we're going to do a deep dive into the impact side of tech and talk about ethics and tech. Nima teaches kids to code, supports underrepresented groups in technology, and cares deeply about the ethics side of things. Welcome, Nima. It's great to have you. Hi, Tristan. Uh, it's nice to be on here. Um, yeah, as you said, I, I'm very interested in tech ethics, uh, as well as web development, computer science, and education. Uh, that's sort of where I fit into things. Awesome. It's been a, it's, you know, it's been a little bit of a sad week in my home state of Minnesota, where we've seen an unarmed U.S. citizen killed by police, and there's been a lot of riots and a lot of conversation online about this. Um, you know, you, as you think a lot about ethics and tech, a great starting point would be hearing your thoughts on how to support more nonviolence with technology and any examples and things you're seeing out there that we could find uh, and learn from and help so help support. Yeah, so um, I, I guess I, I sort of go against the grain in terms of seeing how technology can be used um, to address those kinds of issues. Obviously, there are sort of the big ones like body cams and um, kind of supporting just more transparency. Um, I think social media has definitely been a positive force um, in increasing kind of the, the word and, and exposing more people uh, to the injustice that happens. Um, so I think those are important things to look at, but it's also important for me um, to see that like the root of the problem is racism. Um, like that, that is sort of the crux of the thing for me. And there, there is this concept of um, people in technology, I think trying to use technology to solve uh, problems and trying to see everything through a technical lens. Um, this for me is very much of a human problem. Um, abstracting it out to technology for me, uh, seems as if it, it sort of gets away from the deeper issue of just systemic um, racism and the, this to me seems to be a time to actually have um, accountability uh, in police forces um, whether that comes out to be you know body cameras like I'm, I'm in full support of that um, but I think honesty and openness um, and maybe a more rigorous system of like recruiting and hiring officers and and keeping them accountable for their actions um because many of the times that i've seen um this stuff kind of pop up in the news um there's not a, a one-time case um for the officer in question um or for the department in question um, there's usually like a, a history of offenses um and, and that, even and that's just the like the issue. tracking of you know, like you would in a startup team almost of like knowing that having accountability within, uh, you know, applying what is happens in business to other organizations so that there's actually that accountability and transparency of records and history and, and yeah. also, and also continued education and helping support 
uh, and lead towards a, a more, um, you know, a dialogue first sort of uh, approach to a lot of this stuff. Because if you're saying, you know, it's not actually technology itself, that it that it's really the societal thing, then I guess communication and that dialogue is going to be of the utmost importance. And with social media and just being able to share those sorts of uh, opinions and stories and keep this dialogue and debate open it's just super super important and uh, mm -hmm. especially as we're in in a stay-at-home environment and just kind of kind of coming out of it but we'll see it for the most of the rest of the year mm -hmm. having have those conversations online is going to be more and more necessary huh yeah exactly and, and I, I mean i think maybe one of the places where technology can have an impact is more making sure that the conversations stay on point um, and that, and that there is like a plan moving forward. I think, I mean, we live in an era where like attention is already so hard to keep. Um, and you know, it's almost as if like the news cycle pushes us through tragedies, um, and sort of just bombards us with like new things to look at every day. And you know, what happened recently is not, is not a new event. Right. If anything, it's it, it's you know just another reminder of just the, the this pattern of tragedies, um, and and where technology I think can fit in is you know the the companies that are in charge of the social networks, so the companies that are in charge of the you know the news media, um, you know they could use technology as a way of like continuing to bring this stuff to light. Um, you know, I, I think, I think like, you know, using tech as a as a medium for narrative. Um, one of the things that, like, say, the Globe and Mail did, uh, or and it has done over over the years, is they run kind of like, and, and the Globe and Mail is a newspaper in Canada. Um, they run like uh, news like series uh, where they'll tackle, uh, you know, big kind of honestly like heavy and topics that like need to be talked about it's just um the missing and murdered indigenous women in canada um and they'll tackle that from like a bunch of different uh you know perspectives um and and have that stuff online and use you know media like twitter uh to like propagate that stuff and continue to like bring the conversation back um i, I think it's just not as simple as saying like what tech can solve this um you know i, I, th mm -hmm. I definitely think there's there's I see issues with trying to view technology as this like politically neutral like tool um, that can be used to fix things. Um, when 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 the problem here, I think, is is people and is you know the just the institution of prejudice and hate um, and supremacy. I found that when I zoom out and think about the big picture, the long term, and I think about human history, like we've always been divided. We've always been kind of dumb and do things that are dumb, um, frankly, and not like helpful to others. I think one of the things that I've always also assumed is that technology um, is not like a solution. If often is what elevates the divisiveness. And like, I think you look back in history, whether it was, you know, forms of warfare and cannons and these kinds of technologies that start were, were thought of as technology in their time, or you think of the internet, which is thought of technology in our time, it both brings people together because it elevates a set of voices and, and helps people rally around a set of causes, but it also polarizes perspectives quite dramatically. 
and we've gotten to a point where I think you're, you're bang on, where it's hard if the technology doesn't take a bipartisan view of how to share multiple kinds of perspectives, um, that you ultimately end up elevating that divisiveness and it could be on one side or the other and, and both sides think each other's wrong. But if you, if you can actually use technology to balance that out and say, hey, look, here, to your point, that Global Mail example, here's five different perspectives on that. Well, now what technology is doing is bringing us together and helping us empathize with another perspective that maybe we didn't see out of the box. And it's less about us being right. And it's more about us trying to like find a common ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I think that's a good point. I totally Go agree. Ahead, um, one of the things that I think of when, when it comes to technology is that like technology is often like built to solve some problem or like if we were to frame it as like a product, like a product exists to, to hit some point uh, and you know, you need user stories, you need a goal, you need to figure out like, oh, what are we really trying to solve here? Um, something that I'll be completely honest is, is sort of a nebulous in my mind is like, you know, when, when people have these kinds of conversations, like what is the goal of introducing technology uh, into this into this sphere? Mm. Um, is it to uh, increase public knowledge of the uh, just the injustices that happen? Like if, if that's the goal, then, you know, social media does a great job of it. And and, and that, that's great. Right? Is is the goal to hold like police departments accountable, right? Um, then yeah, like body cameras make sense to me there, right? Uh, is the goal instead to like, um, like increase just kind of like education, um, they're like, to like tackle the, perpe the perpetuation of like systemic oppression, right? Then I don't think the technology is necessarily the tool there, or like I don't think it would be like the, the first thing that I would reach to. Right? Mm. I think like like a system wide like education reform that's kind of like one of the big things, or uh, demilitarizing the police forces, right? Like this might honestly be an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? Let's let's remove technology from the equation, yeah. here, right? Like. The police forces in in the states, and I say this as a Canadian, so I, everything I say should be taken with like multiple grains of salt. But like, the police forces in the United States are among like the most militarized forces in the world, um, which to me doesn't make a ton of sense because if if you take like the community that you're supposed to protect and serve, right, and you start off um, by like arming yourself as a, a small army, right you're approaching the problem as the problem are the like is the community right this isn't like oh let's help the community thrive um this is no there's like like a view of we need to be militarized because we're fighting something in the community and, and, and i think that's a place where maybe a conversation about technology sort of lies in that like technology i think tends to like color our worldview. Right? And the more we arm ourselves with tech, in this case, I mean, the tech for me is like surveillance technology that the, the police forces use, like all kinds of like predictive policing um, technology. Guns in general are technology. Um, like that kind of stuff, I think, I think begins a mindset of like an oppressor versus an oppressed. Mm -hmm. um, we that, focused that, on that uh, enforcement level yeah. Um, that side of technology and, you know, like anything from the atom bomb to warfare, there's been a lot of that enforcement technology put into, let's say, the government. 
where a lot of the societal technology, even down to, let's say, waiting in line for the DMV and when, you know, you could get your license online with certain verifications is that part lacks um, a lot, at least in the U.S. I mean, this exists in private businesses as well, I think. I mean, if you ever listen to someone like Simon Stenyak and he talks about the concepts of server servant leadership, what you know, a lot of what you're saying, I think, obviously, it's on a much bigger scale. It's much more polarized with guns on one side and technology and information on the other side. You know, these are the tools. But you even look in a business um, and the idea of servant leadership is really to start with the assumption that the community, the organization is right. And, and he breaks it down to some really interesting and human elements in some of his talks online, which I encourage people to look at. And it starts around the premise of like, you know, ideas like cortisone <laughs> and like the, the actual physical functions of your body and why people react to stress in certain ways and how that stress induction creates a certain set of devices perspectives not in any group of people. And once you get beyond 150 people and you can't maintain healthy relationships anymore, I mean, it's been proven, this just gets to a whole other scale. I mean, I think you can see see this, this trend of technology in um, smaller buckets as well. And, and one of the things I try to think about a lot is if you look at it in a smaller bucket, can you start to break down some of these problems into bite-sized pieces, find potential solutions, and, um, and at the same time, um, then a, apply that to the macro effect, the bigger thing, because it's really hard to tackle on the grand scale. Yeah, that's a good point, right? If you look at that, you know, if, if, if Simon says 50 and, you know, or I've seen other things where tribes, you know, ended up capped at 100, 150, then it's like all of a sudden we've been thrown into this global culture, global environment. And, and, that, and it's been a huge challenge creating a dialogue that is positive, that, you know, isn't polarizing and, um, finding other avenues. I, I think I, I, there was uh, even uh, Sean Parker, you know, of Napster and Facebook started a company called Brigade, which is now defunct, but was had a really interesting way that they were trying to encourage a political uh, dialogue between people as well as like help you answer questions. You'd sign up, you'd answer questions about, let's say, some of the things you cared about. And then you would be, you know, hey, you you fit closer to like these politicians in your area. And these are the people that you could vote for, but you like maybe agree more on this, but you disagree less on this. And it kind of helped provide some clarity and context. Um, And it it was kind of sad to see that go and and not work Mm -hmm. quite the way they wanted, uh, because I thought that's where maybe technology could come into play is like a layer on top of social media that helps guide you and educate you. Yeah, right. I think the education is is just as big as the dialogue when it comes to these greater global challenges and even localized challenges. No, I, I think that that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of Brigade before. Um, this is a really interesting concept. But I think it does bring up sort of, I, to, 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 I guess for this, I have to give like a little bit of background about myself. Like my, my view on technology is maybe like a a bit more Luddite than most web developers. Like I unpack that. You're using a big word that yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> Simple, simplify that. Tell me what that word means. So Luddite, uh, it's basically, um, I mean, I'm, I, I can't remember the history uh, exactly, but the Luddites are a group of people who I believe were, um, the, the narrative is that they were anti the industrial revolution. If I remember correctly, it's more that they were cynical on the way the technology was being used. Mm. And, and again, that like 
that um, divisive effect of introducing technology into a society and how like by nature maybe by nature isn't the right word but like um in on, on a, a regular sort of situation it was yeah english textile workers in the 19th century so they had a more practical approach to like they were trying to re- reduce their their technology down to a set of just like real world principles yeah. like more like like not leaning into the modern era saying hey how do we stay simple in our lifestyle exactly and for me i i, I take a point of view where personally i think that a lot of things are you know over teched like over engineered mm. um and you know I'm, I'm not saying that like technology doesn't have a place in society and, and it very much does Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, I think we haven't even evolved, right? Like it, almost yeah. like you're saying, it's like these these kind of innate human functions and I, connections I, that matter. Yeah, well, I think I think people underestimate uh, the, the value of people, um, and I think people underestimate like the effects that techifying something has. Um, so some like books are really neat to look at, or things like. Uh, there's a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Interesting. Um, yeah, and it's, it's fantastic. And in, in, in sort of a similar vein, but more focused on um, women's issues is Invisible Women. Um, and then there's another book called Race After Technology. These are sort of all three different books that look at the way that um, viewing societal problems through a lens of technology um, abstracts us away from tackling the actual problems because math has this tendency to make us think that we understand something um and and it has this tendency to make us think that like oh we can find a pretty simple solution to something Mm. so you know say that we're talking about like political stuff right one of the things the weapons of math destruction sort of brings up is like if you try to attach algorithms to um you know people's like very complicated political leanings uh, it can make us feel as if like, oh, like we can put ourselves into this bucket, we can use this data to classify ourselves, and now I can make these decisions. Um, and we're not really looking at all the biases that are introduced into those models, right? Uh, we're not looking at, you know, the fact that like data can be used to lie, or data is really easy to misunderstand if mm. you just don't have um, that background. So, so weapons of mass destruction looks at this from a high level, kind of like uh, data being used for uh, you know, whether it's on purpose or accidentally perpetuating inequality, I think, yeah, how big data increases inequality and threatens democracy. Um, you know, Invisible Women looks at uh, tech and data uh, specifically as um, and the world is sort of viewed through tech, which is explicitly a male lens historically, right? And, and whenever we're participating in technology, it, it, it can be important to look at it through the fact that technology isn't this thing that just exists in time, right? It's got a whole bunch of history baked into it. Mm. Uh, so Invisible Women looks at, you know, what kind of male history is built in. And then Race After Technology looks at what kind of like racial history uh, and racial bias is baked in uh, to the technology that we use and what effects it has. Wow. Um, I bring these things up just because like it, it is important to me to like, in, in instead of like reaching immediately for like oh how can tech fix this tech is just a way to like enhance our abilities right and tech is just a way to um to to 
sort of increase our throughput as as people um then it is important to look at like what we what it is that we're producing in the first place right if if we live in a systemically oppressive society and we build technology um chances are that we're like in infusing those thoughts into that tech mm. right um you know in, in sort of obscure ways as well I, I don't mean that there isn't you know like like help that tech can offer um but i i personally i just don't think that tech should be the first thing that we reach for and um, on the other hand like dialogue and conversation um like those are sort of bigger for me legislation for me is really big right like how do we organize a group of people like i think that that's what legislation is for right and that's what regulation is for right? and, and kind of trying to keep people within stuff that we've decided as a society makes sense right and sometimes that stuff doesn't make sense like the stuff that's written on paper doesn't make sense and it's important to raise those conversations right discuss that and include as many people and as diverse of a, of a group of people in those conversations Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about sharing the different perspectives as well. And, and I couldn't agree more. There's so much good stuff to unpack there. Like, first of all, I think it's a contrarian view to, to take this minimalist technology idea. It's like the best technology is no technology. You know, like if we really need technology to abstract us, we got core problems that we're not addressing. Um, I think the second thing that I heard you say there, which is so awesome and I, and I talk about a lot um, is like, a leaner mentality to how you implement technology is valuable and a smaller amount of data is often more informative. So like Malcolm Gladwell's thin slicing techniques that he talks about where, you know, it's important to be able to use your intuition because your intuition is one of the most powerful things. And the more data you have, the less you use your intuition, your creativity to empathize with the circumstances and bring that human element back. But one of the things I've always been challenged with is there's a balance between this and then the organizational and human challenge. Things like, um, I think it's Parkinson's law of triviality, what we commonly call a bike shed in software engineering, where you know science has shown that a organization will spend their time on the most trivial, or a disproportionate amount of time on the tri most trivial issues. Um, and, and so like, when you go to the other extreme, you also run into these other balances. One of the things I'd love to know, because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about how to educate software engineers, building curriculum to teach them, and you rightly so put it that maybe we're implementing our biases in the technology. What are some of the things that you are implementing in, in different curriculums, training, and just like the what you're passing down to future technologists mm -hmm. that you think help them to embrace these ideas and both be successful in you know a job market which is you know very capitalistic but also then like balance out that other side of it as well yeah oh that's a great question um that's sort of like the eternal struggle really yeah um, so <laughs> so i i was the uh i was an instructor at a web development boot camp um and i mean the way that like boot camps are structured is there isn't a ton of flexibility in what you're teaching there's some benefit to that and there's definitely some drawbacks to it um, one of the things that the bootcamp that I worked at, um, and, and, and still like continue to, to kind of work with is that there's, there is some space for, um, you know, for students to explore and for instructors to bring in kind of like new ideas during, during lectures and some activities for reflection. Um, I think the things that have been most helpful, um, in kind of like broadening people's kind of sense of society and social impact in technology is 
um, reminding people more than once, like on a, on a recurring basis, um, that development and that technology is not an apolitical action. Like you don't have to put your politics at the door when you engage in technology. And in fact, um, in my opinion, it, it, it might even be your duty to bring that with you. Right? For me, coding is inherently, a, like, like technology is inherently a political thing. Um, so, you know, in web, like in, in the web development bootcamp, I used to run um, sort of like an advanced lecture, which was, it was like a two hour workshop session where I would uh, have everybody kind of sit, go through like a series of like workshop style discussions um, on interesting kind of like, you have to start with like the quirky things um, that pop up in technology. Like, oh, have you realized that like you spend a lot more time on Facebook? Like, wow, that's weird, right? And then, and then you work your way up to you know, the more kind of hard hitting and, and, and definitely like sort of harder to stomach issues that technology brings in. Um, so I, I got a lot of positive feedback from students in those kinds of, like in those sessions. I, I would run them every month um, and they were just aimed at students. So after a while, I ended up like opening it up uh, to the general public. I ran a, like a meetup series last year of like ethical tech YBR. And every, I think I, I did it like every month or so. We had like 10 sessions. Uh, we would meet up and I would invite in like a, a speaker to talk about some completely different um, concept of, of like social impact or like ethics and technology. Um, I think it's really easy to like have this very like tunnel vision approach um, and go like, oh, okay, well, when people are talking about ethics and te technology, like that means like accessibility, right? Like that's all that means. Or it just means surveillance. And that's not something that I deal with because I'm a backend developer or whatever, right? Um, and I thought one of the benefits of bringing in like a, just a, a, a different group of people every time or like a different speaker every time um, sort of made it more clear to people that technology is, is, is not like, oh, there's tech and then there's ethics of tech. Like ethics of tech is deeply built into technology as a whole. It, it almost like, like trivial ways, I think. I mean, we look at like the code that we write, right? And, you know, maybe we think about like, why, why are we coding in this particular programming language, right? Like, or like, why, I, I code, I use React a lot, right? I, I do a lot of front-end development in React. I like React, it's a ton of fun. Do I like Facebook, right? Like, do I like Facebook as a company? Right? I'm, I'm not here to put words into anyone's like mouth. I don't love Facebook, right? And maybe it's, and this is what I try to impart on my students is like, maybe we have the choice to like choose to participate in tools um, and, that, and that choice is a political one, right? Um, you know, I, I am working to try and learn Vue so that I can like wean myself off of Facebook. Mm. Um, it, it's like those kinds of things, like the, the small choices that we can make um, that, you know, nobody has to be a hero for. And then there are the bigger ones. Like I tried to make a big deal um, in terms of like my teaching to remind people that like, you know, when you read about whistleblowers and stuff on, you know, online or on the news, like that, 
that doesn't have to be someone that's like oh like all the way up here like that only happens once in a while like there's injustice happening all the time and you know your, your civic duty or your like responsibility is to is to use the fact that you're able to voice your you know voice your thoughts if you have that ability right like if if your job's not at risk and you know all that like if you have that privilege um why not use it what do you think's the most constructive way to do that because i think one of the things i often hear in software engineers is sort of like separate the technology from the politics i agree with you and and often people are trying to judge the merits of technology um, based on like the technology, like React is great because React has this X things, not because it was built by mm -hmm. Facebook, maybe, mm -hmm. right? And like one of the things, again, balancing out that um, that paradigm, what what would be, be the advice that you'd give to engineers to bring these things in in the most constructive dialogue? Because ultimately, mm -hmm. you, you know, um, you can raise your, you can bring a voice to this discussion to be an enabler of progress or a blocker of progress. And, and you want to really understand which is, the best situation for you to like the best outcome for you right exactly yeah yeah like i'm, I'm not telling anyone to, like not use react like I, if you know if somebody is hopping in a web development the first thing i tell them to check out is react yeah like, Yo, you're gonna love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's great um i think maybe the most constructive way for engineers to approach this is to make like to normalize conversation about this stuff mm. in the workplace um you know like i I encouraged my students and, and the people who would come to uh, my meetups to like start these conversations at work and, you know, maybe start a little reading group. Right. Um, you know, obviously like not everyone can do that, but, but what I heard a lot of success about was like people bringing up uh, things that are maybe like, like particularly relevant to their field. So, um, you know, a lot of people who are like front end developers uh, would tell me that like, Oh yeah, no, I brought up this, this accessibility issue. Um, you know, at work, like we noticed, I noticed that, you know, there's all these bugs or whatever that we're trying to tackle with the product that we're building, but accessibility, like we're, we're leaving out a whole group of people here. Right. And that's something that we need to talk about. And so I think the most constructive thing that engineers can do is like exercise their ability to like voice these things into, and to treat ethical issues, uh, to be as important as like technical issues. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like if, say somebody works at TikTok, right? Um, TikTok recently, I think I have this here. TikTok recently had a, a thing where they, they were being criticized because they have like a filter to filter out. Like, I, I don't use TikTok, but I, I figure there's like a trending situation, whatever, but they'll like filter out videos of, you know, quote unquote, ugly people, um, which is just like- Like out what? of the main feed yeah. or something. Out, out of the, the main feed, feed yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, there's, there's engineers who build that stuff, right? Like- You had to put energy like, into implementing yeah. that opinion. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it's, it's like that kind of stuff where I think- It's already happening, often, right? It's happening on, on that end. So it, why not talk about it in a more, you know, mm -hmm. how to be proactive about includes, inclusion or accessibility or even how do these cultural how do our cultural values as a company or as a person then ladder up to the tools we use in a yeah. business environment yeah exactly and i think you know inclusion and diversity like that's the, the, the easiest thing to start with right like you kind of look around you go, okay are we doing our best right to include people from you know different income brackets and different like geographies like oh does everyone live in the same neighborhood Maybe that's something that we need to discuss. Oh, does everyone here not have children, right? Like maybe that's something that we need to discuss. Um, and, and, you know, making like 
an actual effort to be transparent and to like invite people from communities that maybe aren't part of the community that you've like siloed yourself in. Right? That's something mm -hmm. that I know I need to do a better job of. I know everyone needs to do a better job of. I yeah. think especially yeah. important with the uh, the families with and young, having young kids at home oh, yeah. when now that everyone's at work and work from home and that's that's a huge uh, pressure point right now boiler <laughs> boiler cooker <laughs> yeah exactly right. I think like say we're like if, if we were talking about like working from home now like these are great opportunities to um, to try and include more people who have to like usually commute from further out right? Um, a, a lot of kind of my worldview on, on this stuff comes from a place of like, like consent and like mutual respect. Like, I think technology is ethical when everybody who's participating in it or who's affected by it has had an opportunity to consent to it. Right? And when the people who are developing the technology, whether that's like technologists or whether that's, you know, more business people or product people or whatever, like when when they come from a place of like understanding and respect for the people that they're working with and the people that they're impacting right and i think so this, i i don't know if I, i'm trying to think of like a good way to word this um y'all were talking about how like uh, it was simon sinek was talking about like servant communities. leadership, ser servant leadership yeah. the number of people you can mm -hmm. have within a healthy community so the number of people that you can have within a healthy community, I think that's when, like, it's kind of a funny thought to me that, like, so much of the technology that we use is built by, like, a small number of people, right? Like, a pretty small group of people, but it affects so many. Mm. And, if, you know, I'm not saying I have, like, the answer here, but it feels really weird to say, like, oh, yeah, like, that small group of people, like, they totally understand all of us, right? Mm -hmm. And that one solution they made, oh, yeah, like, totally like, covers everything, totally right. Mm, interesting like could you yeah. co-opt the technology more or like open source you know i know we're, yeah. we're huge advocates of open source and open source a lot of our ops and automations mm -hmm. and everything but like trying to get that community feedback loop a lot more exactly. often there's yeah, definitely not, i love that right like, there's definitely an obligation to like stimulate that but one of the things i try to encourage especially younger engineers to do is is to like voice their opinion with a healthy skepticism because like one, one of the things i hear from you is like well, we should be skeptical that this is right. And whether it's something that you're building or it's the merits of capitalism and the fact that consent equals accepting a terms of service. I mean, you should be skeptical of something. And one of the most powerful ways to exercise a voice constructively is to opt out of it. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it's yeah, one of those we things. We don't have to participate all the time. Yeah, exactly. You choose what things you contribute to. Um, and I think it goes back to what you're saying about, you know, React and these sorts of things too. It's like if the if the the quality of the solution outweighs the merits of, you know, the the other side of the equation, you may choose to opt into it, accepting that you don't necessarily agree with all the principles. But it's mm -hmm. I think a part of it starts with um, a healthy skepticism, almost a contrarian skepticism, where you assume most of what you know is wrong to some degree, mm -hmm. and you're trying to figure out how do you make it better over time understanding that it'll never be perfect and you need to balance out those those um, potential pitfalls. One of the examples in yeah. recent memory of this um, issue is just everything that went on um, with ICE and some of the major tech codes. I mean, this is something that we saw very much shake up the developer community. Did you pay much attention to that or have any thoughts on, on that? Because that's one of the sort of, I think, really clear examples recently where 
and ethics has re really entered the, the technology realm and developers exercised a voice specifically by opting out of certain things, sometimes jobs, sometimes projects. Yeah, no, I, I, I followed that a little bit. Um, like in, in the in the list that I put together, there's one called no tech for ice, uh, com. Yeah. And yeah, like I think I think there's I, I was very happy um, to see that happen. You know, to see a bunch of people get together and say, you know what, like we're, like, we're fine. Like we're not. I'm, I'm not going to take the job. I'm not going to take the money. I'm not going to develop for you, um, because we don't agree with what you're doing. Um, and I, I'm excited to see that kind of stuff like continue. Um, I think that that particular situation reminded me of. Uh, I think something similar happened at Microsoft. Mm, yeah. um, Microsoft had some some contract with. Um, yeah, I think GitHub had some challenges there as well. Um, and then there was a big open source project. I forget the one. I won't don't want to name names, but somebody removed a, a public contribution. I think it was in like perhaps the I don't want to name it, but somewhere in the cloud provisioning space, and it mm. caused a lot of challenges for a lot of production systems. Like frankly, it was a silent protest that shut down mm. a lot of you know, for-profit systems. And the person who I believe was part of the catalyst for it um, very much was taking a position of it's my obligation to remove this public contribution so that it's not used in those realms. And unfortunately, you know, I have the right to do that based on my opinion. And, and it really sort of, I think, summarized the whole thing quite well in an action-based approach. Yeah, no, I, I totally welcome that kind of stuff. Like I... I think people should have the right to, you know, to their work uh, and to choose what their labor is being used for. Um, I mean, I would feel sick if I knew that like my labor was being used for something uh, that I just outright don't agree with. Mm. Um, and, and being able to like, like having the ability to take that ownership and say like, mm, no, like I'm not okay with this. Like I fully welcome that. Um, yeah, like there is, I've been. Do you, do you mind if I take it back? Just like, a, yeah. like a. I had a thought. Please do, yeah. So I was thinking about basically that, that Simon Sinek thing about like communities getting too big, right? And one of the things that I wanted to mention there is like when when we have these sort of like one size fits all um, products, and you know we're thinking like, okay, like this this company has gotten so big, uh, they must be so big because they're good, right? Like they must, and not necessarily good as in like morally good, but like. From a from a qualitative standpoint, like they, they the tech must be great. Right? This must be a great solution. You know, if Uber is so big, right? If they're so successful, it must be because their product is good. Right? And uh, or, or you know, if I was to say the same thing about like Twitter, I think they there are good people um, for sure. But I think that one of the things that happens when 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 a product or like its 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 range gets so big is that that like margin of people that like. You know, say, say we start off with like, oh, this product targets 100 people and, you know, 90 of those people are actually well served by the product, but maybe 10 of those people aren't, right? Maybe those, those 10 people are like actively actually hurt by the product or left out of the product. Um, you know, when, when that thing blows up, like that margin is still going to be there. And if anything, like it, it'll just increase. And so when we look at something like, like Uber or we look at something like... Um, I like. The, is it okay if I name names? By the way, is that totally up to you. It's totally up to you. <laughs> I'm probably never gonna apply to work at Uber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Their tech is cool. I, yeah, yeah. You know, 
We, you know, we, there's Uber or like DoorDash or you know they'll look at like Twitter, uh, Twitter, like um you know they're, they're they're big products that in one way or another leave out or, or like close off a certain group of people or increase um, issues because of the mass that they've reached. Um, so if I was to say like DoorDash, right? Like uh, DoorDash is like a food delivery service similar to like Uber Eats. Um, you know, among those services. And this is not to like attack DoorDash specifically, but like among those services, part of what they do is they, they take menus from restaurants and put them online. Okay? And maybe that like works well for like, like when you have a small kind of user base, or you're like geographically just kind of centered around a city or two, right? maybe, maybe a province or a state. Um, because then like you have the ability to interact with every one of the restaurants that is being put on your service, right? And you have the ability to inter interact or to like, maintain a relationship with like your delivery people and with your customers okay. um, what ended up happening with some delivery services is that like as they expanded um, restaurants were having their menus being put online um, for delivery without being consulted ahead of time okay. so you'd run into like all kinds of weird stuff like you know maybe the restaurant already does delivery right why is like they have paid delivery people why is their menu online Right? Why are other delivery people coming in to do the thing? Like that's that's just weird, right? Now we're losing money. Um, also, maybe the menu's out of date. Like I I personally know people who run restaurants who have had out of date menus put online right, without their consent, where the prices were, you know, they were higher than they used to be. Like they lowered their prices in the past couple months, and whoever had originally sold in the menu like didn't count for that. Right? And and that's the kind of stuff that like you know they ended up calling, but like it this had been going on for months at this point, right? Like it, it had been going on for months and, and they call and they're like, oh, like what's going on? And a company like that particular company that does the delivery, like they have the ability to just handle these like off cases whenever somebody notices, right? But, but they just keep rolling and expanding without thinking about the effect that they're having on like small businesses that are thousands of kilometers away. Right? Um, and I don't blame them for it. Like it's really hard to like sit in an office and think about, oh, like, how's somebody all the way in British Columbia going to feel if I'm over in Silicon Valley? Like, I'm, I'm not really going to care, to be honest, right? Like, I, I can't expect people to care. And so I, I'm here, like, I'm, I'm interested in, like, seeing if maybe over time there's, like, a movement towards, like, smaller solutions to, like, local problems, mm -hmm. right? Or, like, open source solutions that like, communities can, like, you know, co-opt and, like, take on and customize, right? So, when we talk mm -hmm. about like Twitter, you know, there are things like uh, Mastodon, right? And so Mastodon is is like a Twitter clone, um, but it's a decentralized Twitter clone, right? It's, it's an instance that you can run as a community. Like the three of us, maybe we really like talking with each other. We could spin up a Mastodon instance and it's like our own private Twitter. Right? And that on its own is pretty cool, but the real power of Mastodon is in its like, um, decentralized aspect where you can federate between instances and what that means is like i can start my own mastodon community here in vancouver and i could keep it locked to vancouver like to just that one website or uh say there's somebody in in minneapolis and they start a mastodon instance uh, we can follow each other and our messages stay like, like like can travel between instances as we consent to them right as as we the community run the instance consent to it um it's pretty cool it's neat technology and i think the, the there's a, a huge range of applications for this kind of stuff right for making software that can be run locally 
um, that can be pretty complicated, right? That serves a particular group of people. So you see with Mastodon, every instance is moderated by the community, but since the code is open source, right? And since like you get to run your own thing, a lot of people will customize it. Right? There's one called a friend camp um, that is, I think it's somebody in Portland started an instance, but they like coded up special features for it, uh, for their friends. And, um, you know, there's like all kinds of weird stuff. And so far I've only seen this sort of limited to the um, social networking. Uh, yeah, friend camp, awesome. I've, I've seen it limited to sort of like the social networking um, sphere. So there's all kinds of uh, like Twitter clones and Facebook clones. There's a YouTube clone called, or I, I call them clones, but they're just analogs. Um, there's a thing called PeerTube, which is a decentralized YouTube, right? And, and the benefits of this stuff is like, we get to own our data, we get to choose what features we want to incorporate into this stuff, and nobody can shut us down, right? Or like nobody can shut the entire network down because they're individual nodes. Right? And I think it would be really cool to take that technology, this like federation between uh, like community-owned instances, and translate that over to things like Uber, and translate that over to things like you know food delivery, where maybe communities can host their own ride-sharing instances. Right? Like why does my data about me, you know, going from you know the bar to my house? or to the movie theater and whatever um, through Uber. Like, why does that need to live in the hands of somebody in Silicon Valley? Like, have you, ever, why, have you yeah. ever been to Austin? So Austin has, I mean, I've seen these pop up in a lot of cities. Austin's a great example. They have mm -hmm. Austin rides where they've created their own local. You know, one of the things I think about a lot is like, I generally believe the free market works. I'm an entrepreneur. Like I'm, I'm pretty much about trying to leverage the free market and the opportunities in the free market to try to do well, like do good for people. Mm -hmm. Like that's generally my premise of like, so we'll call it social capitalism for the moment, um, barring a better term. But like one of the things I think about a lot is a lot of these localized initiatives, small initiatives that are that are potentially stronger in purpose, they have the burden of getting beyond a set level of critical mass in the free market for the free market to ultimately choose them. And I think what happens is as you see more of this more centralized approach, there's more that goes into it, whether it's investment or just buy-in because of ease of use, that it creates an inevitably more complicated burden. And so I struggle to find a method in which technology can solve that because I think inevitably, as we said earlier, as we add more technology, it gets harder to use. As it gets harder to use, there's less adoption. Less adoption means we don't you know, bridge the, the, um, the burden of proof, I guess we'll call it, within the free market. And, and I, that leads me back to the roads of like, technologists doing profitable things that are good for people and being as mm -hmm. empathetic as they can to their users and if they and being able to opt out of circumstances where they know their standards are being compromised whether that's their standards mm -hmm. and obligation to their customer to their community or in some cases their employer i mean i think that does come back to a free market opportunity to be able to opt out of the things that you want to participate in and i don't think that that means that like you have to be particularly libertarian or in any other sort of like realm. I think it's just like pretty rational to consider the like burden of proof needed to get enough buy-in for something to become a norm, right? Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, one of the things that I, I kind of struggle with a lot personally is just that like, I think all this stuff is really cool, right? Like I think Mastodon is really cool. And now that I'm looking to write Austin, like that, that looks pretty neat as well, right? And there's all these like small initiatives. I definitely struggle 
personally with seeing like 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 you said just the you know will this stuff be adopted right and will will it survive in a in a, in, in the free market and is just is there the like the capital sort of like incentive um for people to invest in the development of this kind of stuff i i think that that's where i sort of I sort of see like a long-term goal of educating people on technology um, and and hoping that that like by by increasing the general awareness of what technology is capable to do and what we're able to to just achieve um, in in small um, sort of smaller cases, I'm, I'm hoping that that makes its way into um, things like the municipal and the provincial governments. Here in Canada, to be able to like, you know, put money into like nonprofit approaches to solving these things, right? And that's some something that like I'm totally aware personally is like a huge pipe dream. Like it's just I don't see that happening anytime soon. Right? But like my dream is like, oh well, like the you know the Greater Vancouver area will like combine forces to create uh, like a, a decentralized uber clone or something right like i just think that that would be really cool and sometimes i feel like the the empowerment of technology and like the cool factor technology and the fact that like it brings us together uh, sort of gets lost in in the haze and, and, and it very much needs to be there but the haze of capitalism and the haze of the fact that like this stuff needs to make money and like, like it needs to reach a critical mass to make money and to have an impact and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm definitely constantly struggling with that in my mind. I think what you're describing um, is a big splash in a small pond, which I think is perfectly, perfectly fine, you know, like whether it's bootstrapping a business in the private sector to do well by a smaller number of people or it's open source mm-hmm. just for the purposes of good, like all of this is relative. And, and it, we talk about this a lot um, in our business because we've switched from a more practical bootstrap model to a venture model. What are the incentives there? incentives are to build a big business but that doesn't mean you have to build a business that doesn't have you know do well by people enable them i think the core of any product at the end of the day you know correct me if i'm wrong but the core core of any product is to help a person feel good and like achieve a thing and like to your point that's going to be harder to do as you grow so Mm -hmm. set a relative aspiration for where what kind of impact you want to the zone the area the distribution i guess like um, but I think when you put put things on these broader stages, things like Twitter, things like government, even the burden becomes quite high, right? Mm-hmm. And you need to have a lot of people rallying around a set of initiatives. I think th- something like open source is a, is a good example of a of a conduit for this um, mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think by and large, like. The products that are being developed and just the companies that are out there are made up of good people right? and people want to do good uh, and like you said like like the core aim of a product is generally um to help someone right or to solve a problem for someone um yeah like i i, I don't I, I don't at all disagree with that and like i i i kind of hope for I kind of hope for a world where like where, where things continue branching in that in that way but where like the the goal doesn't need to be mass adoption like it doesn't need to be um this like oh like we went worldwide 
right? Like that's, I, I hope for a world where like, where we can, we can focus a little bit closer um, to like our immediate area where like, I can be a bit more honest to myself that I do understand the people around me um, more than I understand um, the people who are even like across the country. Like I, it feels disingenuous for me to say to myself that like, oh, I know what's good for everyone. Um, and, and I know that people don't go into you know, creating businesses and creating products with that, with that mindset. But I think that that's something that just happens through technology is that like a tech in, in abstract, I guess, tends to have this, like, this is the solution. Um, and, and, and that this is again, like neutral and apolitical, um, I think I'm like talking myself in circles. Well, maybe here, maybe we coined a new term today, right? Maybe this is a good mm -hmm. way to conclude this. What I heard today yeah. is applying the concepts of technical debt to social impact debt. So as a business is growing, yeah. it's incurring this idea of debt with the impact it's making. And it should have a place in the backlog. It should be considered in line with the other kinds of debt, technical debt, business debt. Hey, financial debt is a thing in, in a lot of private businesses as well. Maybe it should be rationalized like that. One thing I would encourage people to look at, because I've, I've looked into this a bit from the, the company and corporate side, is in, in, in um, BC and I think in other places, we have what's called a B class. Um, it's a type of corporation that has a triple bottom line. Um, you're accountable to your shareholders, you're accountable um, to your finances and, and these sorts of things, but you also um, have a degree of accountability right in your corporate documents, your, your um your notices of incorporation, which that state the actual intentions of your, your corporate goods. So you're effectively your shareholders are accepting that tertiary sort of like avenue for incorporating that as a priority into the business, into the business direction, management, leadership, and governance, right? Um, and I think that's a really good a really good idea. I think the reason that the B Corp was created was to try to better align these ideas of social impact with the interests of investors and shareholders to help um, funnel resources into businesses without having to say like, look, it's either social impact or it's profitable or it's venture, right? Mm -hmm. um, and therefore create this, this sort of compromise where businesses that do have a purposeful goal can ultimately still find the funding, the resources and the trajectory they need to get past us a burden. Um, and I believe this is something that exists in other places. I just only really know about it here in Vancouver through a couple companies that I've, I've personally um, know the founders of who specifically set the business up both for venture, but also for the purposes of doing well. And this was a, um, a really popular, recently it became a much more popular method for how people incorporate their business. That's super cool, it's a B corporation. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, and there's like two avenues to it too. I think you can, one, you can actually start it out as your legal document um, instead of, you know, as your, as your you know, uh, incorporation docs or you can actually be certified them, certified by them by going through this process of looking at all aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I think it's, it is a really interesting. Another, another uh, I think, format, some startups in the tech scene that we've seen is, is there's kind of a, you know, there's 1% for the planet. And then there's like a similar organization that's like 1% uh, of your like, of your equity. And, uh, and, and that's like dedicated to nonprofits or causes or, or however you want to dictate it. And so it's interesting seeing some of these those models, and I, I think it'd be really interesting to see continuation of that and more uh, more emerge that help build that into the like bake it into the cake, you know, not just be the icing on top. Mm -hmm. 
No, this is awesome. I'm definitely going to take a look through this. I think there's just so much power in these like organizational structures, I guess, that that allow people to express themselves both, you know, through like like you've said, the uh, you know, you want to be successful as a business, but you want to do well. Um, I found it really cool lately to it's in the in the past like six months or a year or so like ex explore all the different kinds of organizations that there are um, being a, a, like my backgrounds in computer science and education and i was i was really embarrassed uh by myself like for for not knowing very much about uh, business whatsoever at all and i i've been exploring uh co-ops mm. uh, the co cooperative structure recently yeah mm -hmm. and um i've, I've found that that's just super 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 cool um, it doesn't seem to work for like everything, but there's just definitely like a really broad range of kind of. Um, yeah, I'm actually a share, I'm a shareholder in two of those actually, but it's more yeah. in the real estate space because you can also use it to structure real estate. And this is where I've seen this idea emerge, whether it's um, Addy here in Vancouver who are helping people become um, homeowners for as little as one dollar, or it's these older structures like um, what's called an undivided interest property. The, the co-op structures actually got applied to fair housing quite a bit. Um, and I think it was something that I went into quite skeptic, but I, I think it works quite well. But there is um, definitely a burden of distributed interests that need to be managed to make sure it works well. It's, it's, it's different than in a corporation because in a, in a true corp, or like a C corp or even a B class, there's somebody who ultimately is the arbiter and has a fiduciary duty to support the shareholders' best interests. But the problem I had with the co-op is it's um, consensus driven and sometimes it's really hard to get to consensus. So that's um, the burden that you have to overcome in a co-op structure. But at least there's a shared set of responsibilities and, and, the, and there needs to be some level of, um, of management that's implemented still, like a board of managers mm -hmm. who, who still do that. But it's, it's much more distributed to that, to that sense. Um, yeah. But you still have a carved out set of just like... Um, rights that you know are, are afforded to you and then a different set of rights that you have to properly govern across these different kind of cooperative interests right mm -hmm. yeah it's super cool and there's like all kinds of different co-ops um I, I was under the impression up until recently that like oh okay there's co-op like the, the workers or like the customers like own the thing or whatever uh, that was like my high level kind of that that's what i understood and then i took this um I think it's Van City yeah. along with BC yeah. Co-op. Yeah. Um, they uh, they run a course on like co-op entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, so I took that recently. It's really cool. Um, they basically they bring in a bunch of speakers from like uh, all kinds of different co-ops around the the Lower Mainland. Um, actually, there were there were a couple of people from Alberta and stuff that came too. Um, it was really cool to see like all the different kinds of co-ops there are because there's like worker-owned co-ops. There's like the, the like customer owned co-ops and there's like co-ops that are owned by businesses like like businesses will form co-ops yeah and you're not finding there's like there's a brewery co-op that's a bunch of breweries in vancouver get together to, to form a co-op um, yeah. and it's not like an in, like individual people but like the breweries themselves which exist independently and i think each of them is just like they're just a like a company um that they'll like they'll got together to form a bigger co-op for like special events and stuff. Um, plus there seems to be a movement for, since there's like lots of freelancers nowadays. Like I do, I do contract work. Um, I, I like, like picking up just kind of freelance contracts and choosing my hours and whatever. And I found that like, there's a whole bunch of people that 
just kind of will get together in groups of like three or four. What's that one? Start. Start.coop. Sorry to interrupt. That one looks interesting. Yeah, no, cool. <laughs> I didn't even There's know there even was an a... accelerator for co-ops. And, and, a, t- co-op and a TLD too. I didn't know that there was a, a dot co-op. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going on a domain. I'm going cool. on a domain buying spree after this call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's um there's this super interesting actually it ties back to Mastodon. There's a there's a worker owned uh, software dev co op called Field Train, mm-hmm. um, and they're Portland based. Um, so Field Train, I believe it's it's like three people, maybe two. Um, I feel like F E E L. Um, yeah, and, oh, and I see. it's it's a couple developers, and they I mean they take on contracts. They're they're a dev shop, but they're they're formed as a uh, as a co op, and they have like a little mission letter and everything it's really cool the the person who like one of the one of the person who runs it darius kazemi he's he's the person who runs uh, they're the person who runs the uh, mastodon instance uh, friend camp that i mentioned earlier um mm. and they've got a, a whole thing on how to how to run your own technical you know technology cooperative um, Distributed and, systems. And this seems to be a, a movement. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's popping up in in at least the Pacific Northwest. I've seen a bunch of them in in you know California. I know that there are a couple in Vancouver. Um, yeah, I've heard of uh, even yeah startups trying to form this model around different ideas, different ideas in in San Francisco. Before. Blockchain, and DAOs, was, like there's a ton of this stuff yeah. that's popped up. There's one called Brave in Vancouver. Yeah, the browser company, um, right? Started by mm-hmm. Brendan Itch, the creator of JavaScript. Oh, no, no. I think Brave, uh, if, if you go brave.coop, okay. um, what they do is um, they, they, they build like overdose prevention technology. Oh, okay. That's, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, they're, and they're structured as a, as a cooperative and they're super, super cool. Um, Does, sorry, you're in doesn't Brave the browser sort of also imply some of this? I mean, that's where I thought you were going with that, but it, it's oh, yeah. it has a little bit less of a social impact, but it's at the very least a, a cooperative model for like, um, I guess your attention. We talked about it earlier, it's hard to get your attention. Like their model for mm-hmm. the browser is instead of people serving you ads and just like the corporations getting mo- money for your attention, their idea, mm-hmm. as I remember it, was that if you use their browser and somebody serves you ads, you get a piece of that money. Oh yeah, so, oh, something you know I actually something like that. Brave, that sounds pretty funny. I think that's where they started because they had this idea of a brave token. They might have just went back to a like oh. a more secure ad, um, you know, ad blocking kind of model value prop. But originally, mm-hmm. there was a lot built into this around the idea that like if you're being served ads, you should um, you should get paid for that. And I think, and that huh. created this cooperative between like the users of the, the browser and then them. But I, I do, it does seem like from their website now, maybe they brought it back a little bit to just simply, yeah, equal flipper fire, like tokens for just browsing. That's, that's the concept is like more of like a rewards generation system with the bat token. And so there's like, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Like originally it was meant to be a little bit more, more monetary, but I think probably it was challenging to get over the hurdles of regulation with tokenization and all that. Um, but like the idea of creating some sort of cooperative interest between advertisers and users, I think is huge because personally there's nothing I dislike more than ads on the internet. I think it's one of the most 
just like zero value things that I can experience as a user. As a business owner, I get it because I want to reach users and try to communicate my value proposition, but there's just so much of my attention that's not used well uh, between ads and other things, right? I definitely say that the user experience as a, as a person experiencing ads sucks. It's, it's the worst thing. Um, this is cool. I'd, I'd heard about Brave, but I'd never really looked too much into it because I just thought it was uh, just, just another browser. But I'll take a look at that because it sort of, I mean, it sort of encaps encapsulates everything that I feel should go into tech, which is that that consent, right? Like, I I consent to the advertisement. So oh, fine, you, you tell interest. me to do the advertisement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that's like, all right, I'm going to opt into it. Um, and And you feel as a user, like the people who made the product are treating you like like an agent, right? Like they're treating you like somebody who has power over themselves. A shareholder right? that they have a fiduciary duty to, to bring it back to that that actual B class, that, that co-op model is like- I like that. That, that yeah. is exactly what the, you, that tries to establish legally is like, here is a value proposition that we have a shared set of interests in and I have a fiduciary mm -hmm. duty to these, not just the bottom line, meaning like here's your money, but I also have a mm -hmm. bottom line to, you know, make sure your attention is used well, your screen time, I'm not leaving you out in the cold, these other things. Um, and I think the best companies have to do that well. The best technologists yeah, no, have to do that well too. Exactly. And and like I I can say in in all honesty, I can say that like sometimes I feel really ignorant on this kind of stuff, right? And I feel really ignorant on like that the whole that whole process. Um, and this is for me, like, I can't really speak for everyone, but like, I can say that through like my education, like just going through computer science, like this was never really something that came up, right? Like my journey through computer science was just like, oh, this is how you code, numerical analysis, whatever, like linear optimization, it's math, you can do things with it, that's cool, you can make a lot of money. Um, and I was going through it, I'm like, oh no, this is cool. Then there's like a, uh, an elective course on like social impact of technology and everyone who took that course is just like oh it's like an easy a like you write a couple things about like drones are bad and you get an a and i mean they're right like the the prof gave everybody like high grades she didn't really hurt anyone gpa wise um but i like i went to every one of those classes and i i, I felt the passion but I still felt like I wasn't, I wasn't like getting there. And, and sometimes I wish like that stuff had been more integrated into my education. Cause like, I feel, and this is again, very much just me. Sometimes I feel very much like a tool, like as a, as a programmer, like I have the ability to like build this thing, right? But I feel like I'm very much in the hands of, you know, the people who are funding me or the people that I'm working for and deciding like what that stuff is actually being used for. Right? And I can say that 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 feels like that's a big part of being a programmer is just kind of like leaving your thoughts at the door. You show up like, oh, here's some GitHub issues that I got to tackle. I've got a sprint meeting today, whatever. Like, like you just kind of get into that and you become a really great programmer, but feel distanced um, from like this side of things. Um, if, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. We try to advocate for a more entrepreneurial kind of mindset within programming mm -hmm. because I think even freelancing the way you're doing that, right? Like it speaks to the idea that you can, you know, step out of that box and take agency in how you allocate your energy. 
being more entrepreneurial as a programmer, I think is a great way to do that. But if you don't have the mechanisms in place to then also like align with the, the value creation model that you're looking for and the incentives that you're looking to align with, it becomes a, a very challenging environment. And I, and you know, I've, I've said this before, I mean, Tris and I have both been entrepreneurs and doing startups for a while. Like it's, it's a challenging journey. And I don't know that that's a burden that every developer wants to pursue, but if you can adopt some of that agency that, that exists in entrepreneurship into how you think about where you allocate your energy and, and, and ultimately as an entrepreneur, you're investing your time, your money and your energy. Um, and that's what's most important is mostly your time and your energy. Um, and I think that's something that applies also to software engineering. So it's like, if I'm going to invest into a set of virtues that don't work for me, I can opt out of that. I can choose to, to sort of allocate my energy differently. And then it's just about creating awareness around where people can find these frameworks that they can align with these value creation models that they align with, which might be more sustainable, might be more impact driven. But the great thing is um, there's a lot of them to pick from. It's just a matter of kind of finding yeah. them and doing the research. Yeah, I think I think the entrepreneur is, yeah. is a lot of times undervalued, um, it, and you know it's sexy to be an entrepreneur, but it doesn't. The entrepreneurship doesn't talk about as much. But that's you know, that's a huge component of being an advocate within your own organization, helping change things, helping make awareness of things, and and yeah, and saying yes or no to projects if you're in a larger corporation. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, I think ability that you have to advocate within organizations that uh, should be looked at as more of that you know that entrepreneurial hero. Well, Nima, I think it, it was great to have you. I think we went way way out of our time, but it was such <laughs> an interesting conversation. Um, where I'm going to put up all these links. We're going to have a long link list on the description nice. of the video, and uh, please if. Anyone out there watching, if there's uh, ideas on topics or people you'd like to have on the show, as always, put it in the comments. Thank you so much, Nima. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Can I, can I shill a couple of things? Shill a couple of things. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So um, first is just a book that I'm reading right now, which is really cool. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called The Death of the Gods. It's by an author named Carl Miller. Um, Carl Miller is one of the people who, I guess, runs a thing called Demos, uh, D-E-M-O-S, I think it is. And it's a, it's a think tank in the UK, and they look at how like power and technology are intertwined. Uh, really cool book. Um, it's just a series of kind of experiences uh, that he kind of goes through around the world, uh, looking at tech and power, uh, both at like a personal level and at a kind of higher abstract level so that is that um, yeah that's the one but penguin death of the god so this is really cool um, and then i mean the the other thing to show is just that i i, I freelance yeah <laughs> needs content where can we find uh, like you curriculum where online. can people find you online so i have um i mean my portfolio like it's, it's just n11o.com um but my name is pretty unique. So if you look up Nima Boscarino, best place to find me is like Twitter or just email me directly um, anytime. Uh, and I'm, we'll throw it in the, we'll throw you in the description too. Totally. Yeah. I'm always looking for smart, like, uh, you know, worldly mind on your team. <laughs> what kind of projects are you looking for? Um, I, I love working on kind of like sort of quirky things that, play around with the way that people interact with each other. Um, I've been working with a 
like a, a local prof on a uh, like a volunteering platform for neighborhoods. Um, so anything that gets people talking to each other is a lot of fun with me, for me. Um, and specifically tech wise, like I, I do a lot of just front end, back end. Uh, I'm not a DevOps guy, so I should probably put that out there. I know I know nothing. That's about all right. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, and education, uh, if it has to do with with teaching people and empowering people um, through education and tech, and that's that's it for me. I, I work with an organization called Canada Learning Code. Uh, so I'd show them as well with people. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to follow up with you and talk about the curriculum stuff because we've got a lot of different ideas about different uh, curriculum stuff that we could definitely pick your brain on. And oh, yeah, let's do it. Uh, all right, cool. cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's it for the op show for today. And uh, Nima, again, huge pleasure to have you. It was a huge pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for, for inviting me inviting me beyond. This, uh, this was a ton of fun. It was really nice chatting with both of you.